Buried.fyi, a project designed to capture stories of personal experiences and life lessons for the young and impressionable. Your hosts are Matthew Berry, Amy Berry Smith, and Jessica Berry Woodward. Join us in a series of interesting interviews of family members and friends. We hope you'll enjoy learning a few things about the Berry family. We could, we could talk about other things. One is that you had a very interesting career, uh, and you've uh, done a, some one of the things that are not like what I did, but there are certain parallels. One of them is that you've done other things which, it seemed to me, required initiative in your part. And one of them comes to mind. When you were working with Coles, I was visiting you one day, and you were, you were busy uh, with a new item you wanted to add to the children's line, and you had taken your idea to a manufacturer, and they were making the thing to your spec. Do you remember mm-hmm. you do that often or that uh, one-off? Um, yes, that's quite common because I mean, the whole point of retail is to innovate and keep your customers coming back. New. So, I mean, there's a balance, of course, to keep what they have, but if you're going to move forward, have to, they have to stay evolved by. So, mm. yeah, that was very common. All right, so in terms of management. Did you have to do this or know what you were doing, or did you have to check with the boss or tell um, In the environment in at the time, it was, so it was expected you would, if you will, those things on your own, but of course there were parameters. So, I mean, I know it does, it's, I guess, common sense to me because I've done it for so many years, but obviously you're addressing a target market. So if you are outside that market, it's not going to work and your boss is going to say you're crazy. But in general, you had free reign as long as you hit your goals. So if you found something that was going to sell and make money and it fit the parameters, have at it. So that was for you, but it was for all of the other buyers too? Yes. Now, of course, it always, in a big company, things get very complicated, right? So everyone has an opinion, mm-hmm. which isn't always helpful. No. And sometimes there's relationships that have to be upheld that are not you know, productive. Mm-hmm. So you have to kind of, that's where the challenge comes in to balance those things, to be able to drive forward what you believe in to be successful based on your informed research and balancing, keeping other people happy. Yeah. So did the next buyer over come to you with hot ideas for you? Um, Once in a while, but honestly, even though, you're all working for one company and your bonus structure, at least at Kohl's, at May Company it was different, but your bonus structure at Kohl's was based on uh, the total company's performance. So, of course, you wanted to help each other, but honestly, you're kind of your own team. Like you were competitive with each other. Mm-hmm. So there was a little infighting going on with marketing dollars and those kinds of things. Who has the best idea? Who should get the most support? Who should get the best space on the floor? That kind of thing. Ah. Well, I thought you had a, a a part of the store that was yours for your line. Oh, absolutely. But again, it comes down to evaluating the productivity. So if you're not, your rack is not productive or your space is not productive, then it's going to somebody else. Because okay. obviously you're all about, you know, increasing shareholder value. So. Yeah. yeah. So that was part of the culture that was expected. And uh, people who got into that kind of a job, knew it and knew how to do it and got out there and whacked away at it. 
Yes, at our level, since I was you know middle America, I wouldn't say we're cutting edge innovation because we weren't high fashion or high, whatever you know that high end uh, retail. It was more studying what's working in the marketplace and how do you interpret it for your customer at the right price at the right time, that kind of thing. A lot of research, a lot of, um, and then making it unique for your particular environment. So did you have to uh, go to every store manager and say, I've got these left-hand gloves I want to add, or did you just ship it? We just shipped it and told them what to do with it. Well, that's nice and simple. (laughs) Well, <laughs> kind of. If it works. I mean, it's harder than that because you want to get them excited about it because so then they'll go above and beyond what you tell them to do. But yeah. So if you were if you were a big boss at Kohl's, you would you would favor that? You think that's a reasonable thing for a company like that to do? Um. Yes, because that's the culture I grew up in, and the current CEO is getting ready to retire with $50 million, so I think he's got a pretty good track record. Yeah. Um, the The challenge I think that senior management faces is – well, the one challenge I always had was, like I mentioned, relationships. So I'll give a simple example. Everyone knows that Levi Jeans are dominant Gene manufacturer, very big brand for Kohl's at the time. I'm sure they still are. But do you see very many people wearing Levi tops? No. But because Levi was a a strong partner, they expected us to buy tops from them. Well, the tops were never productive, but you were forced to buy them to make the partner happy. So those kinds of decisions are tricky to balance. So something else has to overperform because, you know, that's going to underperform. So that's where the balance and creativity comes in now, on how to in that, keep everyone happy. In that case, would the tops be handled by the same buyer, or was that dumped on some other buyer? Um, it varies by area. Mm. So, like in the men's area, there's separate buyers. In kids, there's um, – well, in big kids, they're separate. Little kids, are the same. So it just varies by the volume of the complex. So that's the way Kohl's does it, and I suppose Pennies and other people do the same thing? Yes. Which means if you're an outsider, as you are now, to those stores, if you have a hot idea, you can go in and talk it up, I suppose. Let me go back to when you were at Kohl's. Did people come to you with ideas? Hey, I've got these this uh, really good item that fits right in. Uh, yes, people did that all the time. But again, being in that environment, when I started there, there was, I think we were buying for 116 stores. And when I left, it was close to a thousand. So there was rapid growth in 10 years. Um, you of course had to align yourself with suppliers who, cause anybody could come knock on your door, but you had to align yourself with people you knew who could support your size of business yeah. and your, all the parameters that went with that. So, um, there aren't that many people out there who really can manage that. No. And so now as, a um, being on the other side of the fence now, of course, we always have to show newness. Um, otherwise, you know, we lose our relevance. But the fact is that 85% of their buys are the same. For example, in outerwear, they're still going to buy the black men's coat that sold last year. They're not going to buy the three-armed coat. Yeah. But you have to show the three-armed coat to get them excited yeah. to make the black one look good. Yeah. Um, and then also we do the same thing I was just complaining about as a buyer that we say, hey, our – 
whatever. Our ladies' business is great. You should be buying more in girls because ladies is good. So, <laughs> which it may not mean that we're the best supplier, best in class of girls. Mm. We are, but I'm just saying. <laughs> you have to get that, in, in that case, get that on yeah. the record here. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, so now Coles grew uh, uh, by uh, getting out of the grocery business. I think it was, wasn't it? And then into the into the uh, merchandising, uh, whatever whatever that line is called, and uh, the store is called, and they've basically stuck with it, haven't they? They haven't. So they and they grew grew just by adding, building more stores, not by buying up Fred's. Well, the niche that started it all was being off mall. So if you remember in mm. the '80s, if you wanted to buy, go to J.C. Penney's, even that's the problem with Sears now, right? That yeah. their um, real estate is all tied to malls, and malls are dead. Yeah. So the Kohl's formula was they were really the first. Um, department store, if you will, that went off mall. Mm. So it was all about the convenience. So they interpreted the success of the mass merchants like a Walmart or Target, but by carrying better product and then sp- narrowly defining um, of the young family who didn't have time that, you know, the whole culture change of mm. being able to run in and out, but be able to buy um, branded quality product. Easily mm-hmm. having front check lanes instead of having to wander around the store to find somebody to help you. All those um, things, having shopping carts, yeah. which aren't really carts, but they're yeah. really, they are carts, right. that kind of thing. Those are all very innovative at the time to um, address a new market. And, you know, the malls are dead. I mean, some are trying to resurface now with theaters yeah. and other entertainment complexes, but it's not about going to buy jeans anymore. Right. Well, so uh, now Kohl's went from one store to a thousand, but they're all the same. But they have one thing that they do? Uh, yes, in general, yes. I mean, they certainly um, modify by region of the country. Yeah. But And there's um, uh, they've gone through a phase that they're trying to fine-tune now about uh, footprint size mm-hmm. to better service smaller markets or urban markets, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. But the success of the company has been suburban off-mall. Now, have, have they done uh, – uh, I think Target has – Super targets that have grocery aisles. Have they done that? Yes. Have they done that sort of thing? Nope. So they're- they believe that part of being good at what you do is knowing what you're not good at. Hmm. I'm not saying that's not the future, but where um, obviously today's world, e-commerce is the yeah. um, the way to go. Yeah. So there are certainly expanded lines that can't fit in the store available on the website. And because they have a very loyal charge customer base, um, it, some of those businesses are growing bigger than the store complex. So an example would be they have a great infant toddler business, but they don't carry furniture or car seats or strollers yeah. and all those hard goods in store because yeah. they take a lot of space. Yeah. But they're available online, yeah. and that business is huge. Okay, so they've they've gotten people accustomed to the let me say the brand names, and they'll come. They'll think if if Coles is flogging a, a baby seat, that's probably okay. Right, and it's, exactly. And it's probably a reasonable price, and you don't have to shop 25 places. Just go buy it and get it over with. Yes, right. When, uh, I don't know how many years ago now, probably 20, uh, Kohl's was experimenting. You were at Kohl's, and you are talking about Internet and what to do about the web page and things like that. Right. And one of the things I proposed, I mean, I'm 25, I suppose I rattled off, was to combine personal shopping with Web order. In other words, type in your order. Personal shopper picks it, you, and uh, and the man goes 
I was thinking of me as a shopper. I don't want to go to the store. Yes. I just want to get the stuff. So meet me at the door. I, uh-huh. I see now in our neighborhood, uh, Giant Eagle Grocery does that. Yep. You order this yep. and, and it's at the door. Or they'll, they have drivers. I, I don't know if it's Uber or something, but they'll deliver it. And so does Walmart. You can, uh, you can order up your groceries and it'll be there when yep. you get there. So right. I was only 20 years too soon. Yeah, that's right. And it, I just did that yesterday. Yeah. I ordered my groceries and had my daughter go pick them up. Uh, <laughs> well, that keeps her out of the makeup aisle. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, that's that's the pro and con of it, right? Like you want to service your customer. That's what they want. They're demanding service and um, they don't want to waste their time maybe on grocery shopping. But in a apparel environment or accessories, you want them in the store. So that's the yeah. trick now is how you balance um, service them on the internet, quick service, but getting them in the store to buy stuff they didn't plan on. Yeah. How to make it an environment. So The other thing one sees is that uh, a lot of apparel uh, websites, I don't know the names, but the, if you don't know quite what size you want, you order six of them and pick out the one you want after it gets to you and send buy back. Yep. I can't imagine how that works economically. But. Um, I don't know that a lot of those people are profitable. The, the company that really um, pioneered that is Zappos, yeah. which is now in Amazon. But for shoes, you know, for footwear, it's a little easier. But um, their prices are definitely not the cheapest. I mean, they're not yeah. crazy high, but yeah. every pair of shoes is a couple dollars more than if you wanted to take the effort to go to a store and do it yourself. Yeah. So I think that's helping them, but I don't know that they're – Making a lot of revenue or profit, I should say. Making revenue, not profit. Yeah, you'd have to figure that every, if you're doing the calculations, if you're the backroom accountant, you'd have to assume everyone's coming back. So you got to price in the return postage. Yeah. Yep. Very interesting, the whole shipping thing. So if I recall, one of your jobs when you were a youth was in a grocery store. Yes. Would you have ever believed at that time that if you had gone, you're talking about initiative and mm. entrepreneurship, if you'd gone to your manager and said, hey, why don't you let people check out themselves? Uh-huh. Would they have thought you were crazy? Uh, probably not, but they would have wondered how to do it. And of course, that was a little bit. In those days, uh, even though I wasn't a regular checker, the checkers certainly did, and I just about did. The checkers knew every price in the store. So if you have ah. 5,000 things, they knew 5,000 prices. So they were faster doing it by hand than, than a, a scanner. Scanners would slow those people down. So, uh, but that's just a different, uh, but would they, uh, <laughs> I don't know. They, that particular chain was uh, started in Boone. The founders, some of them still worked in the store, worked, you could see them around. And they, uh-huh. they grew that from uh, one store to, I don't know, 50 or 100 all over Iowa. And they, wow. they built warehouses. And, and that was a, it was just a grocery store. It wasn't uh, anything very fancy, but they were you know, competitive and nice and made it work. Uh, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you can do that anymore with, uh, with any line of merchandise, uh, I guess people must know how. But uh, I don't know how you start and grow from one store selling X to a hundred, or I don't. I just don't know. Well, they in that time, did you have delivery? Yes. 
See, isn't that interesting? Because then that wasn't a thing for a long time. And yeah. now just the last couple of years, it's come back like you just mentioned, yeah. that it's commonplace now, especially if you want, I don't know, you're buying bulk things like paper towels and yeah. heavy things yeah. and just have people bring them to your counter. Yeah. <laughs> who wants to carry that around yeah. in your car and whatever when there's people who could do it for, you know, five bucks. That's right. It's all, it's, it's a big circle. Well, that's right. You were even talking about going off mall. I remember when all the stores were off mall because there weren't any malls. Well, good point, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. So we just need to figure out what the next big thing is. What used to be good that we should bring back? <laughs> That's right. How, how far back can we go for scratching your heads? Uh? <laughs> well, let me ask you now in your present job. Now, uh, who's in, are you in charge of new products? Are you, are you supposed to think up new things to sell? Um, yes, it's a smaller company, so everybody, you know, can do that. Um, it's not specifically in my job description. They'll come up with five new things. It's more, um, market research and identifying opportunities and then being able to quantify those opportunities. And if they fit with, you know, our qualifications as a company and, um, you know, if, if we can pitch it, if we can make a sale, the likelihood of making the sale before we put effort into it. So we have to kind of evaluate the risk reward of every stage of that. So there's, and I'll give an example. Uh, the biggest growth category, let's say at Kohl's, because we're talking about Kohl's, is men's big and tall, which oh. is an interesting commentary on our yeah. society, but whatever. Okay. <laughs> However, even though it's big growth in percent, it's not a big dollar volume yet. Mm-hmm. So we can certainly make our same coats and big and tall, but it's expensive. And when you're ordering, you know, a couple hundred pieces, we're not interested in doing it. Yeah. But there's a risk there because if we're not going to do it, they're going to buy from somebody, somebody else, else yeah. which then gets a new supplier into the mix. Yeah. So we kind of balance that very delicately. Like, okay, we don't make all 12 styles, but we'll make you four. And that you have to figure out the line of what will keep them satisfied so they don't enter a new supplier in there. Mm-hmm. But we really don't want to do it mm-hmm. because it's not like, – we're built for volume. Sure. So we want Costco orders where they're buying 300,000 units of one thing. We're not a boutique who's making 600 of something. Mm-hmm. So it's just you know figuring out how to balance all those things and identifying what are those 300,000-unit items. That 600, that's very nice, but we're not interested. Well, so a Costco kind of a guy, does Costco call you up and say – I want big and tall. Um, they haven't yet. If Costco did, we would do it because that would make sense. Yeah. But can you but, can you wait for them to call you? Or do you have to go in there and say, hey, when you're ready for big and tall, think about us? Yeah, we do that, yes. Yes, whenever they come, particularly in the showroom, that's the purpose of the showroom is to be able to show them the whole breadth of what we do. So if somebody comes up to them and says, hey, we really need, I don't know, ski gloves. They'll think, oh, yeah, I buy coats from these people. I know they make gloves. Let me call them. So there's some of that. Now, you grow, I think, by uh, licensing out brands, buying in brands, and that sort of thing in your present company. Is that right? And Actually, we don't license anymore. We um, It's just hard to balance what the licensor wants versus what you do when they – it goes back to the they, they think oh they we think this is what's right for our brand but we know as outdoor experts that that's not going to sell so there's too much of a rub so actually the um, brands we have are brands that we own that we own and build so if you want a new brand if you wanted to get into 
I don't know, left hands read something, you would go buy buy somebody's brand. Is that right? Yep. Yep. And you do that with some regularity? Um, cautiously, always in the market looking, but it's not so easy to find those brands that don't have a history or – I mean our big success of late was the Jerry brand, which was around in the 60s, which had just been dormant. So that was a good one because it didn't have any baggage with it. <laughs> oh, yeah. How about that? <laughs> yeah. So uh, would you look around for uh, – since you're a volume op- operator, would you look around for somebody who's got a bright idea – selling in, in the corner store someplace and go buy it up before they get big? Or would you wait till they're already big and buy it then? No, if it filled uh, our requirements that like fit with what we are and who we do and we it would gain us mm-hmm. a new tier distribution, that's the other problem. There aren't that many retailers mm-hmm. out there anymore. So if we had another, yeah. let's say another company like that, another brand that we brought to Costco or Kohl's, so, yeah, we like that, and then they'll quit buying what you already have because they only have limited space yeah. and there's limited retailers, limited right. volume retailers. Yeah. So it's right. kind of that, okay, If you we haven't seen any slowdown yet, but if we start seeing disinterest in your current properties, then you're like, okay, we better find somebody to replace this. But if you just offer it, there's never plus. It's always a trade. Right now there hasn't been a need yet. Mm. There was a big need. This is a good story that I might have told you before. Um, okay, I don't know how many years ago, but a while ago, let's say eight years maybe. Maybe um, six, maybe there is a big need for women's outdoor apparel. And there was a company out there based out of Vermont for women by women. Anyhow, they had the great name of ISIS. <laughs> and that was before the whole oh. terrorism thing blew up as a big world issue. Uh, we uh, didn't pay a lot for it, thankfully, but it was a great, beautiful product. In fact, I still have some coats that I love. They're beautiful. Um, but it was definitely a niche in the market, and Isis is actually an Egyptian goddess of nature and outdoor or something. Yeah. So it all sounded great, and yeah. then suddenly Isis, the terrorist group, is in. And then it was we kind of uh, made a joke because you know Obama always called it Isol, and so we're like, oh, they have a branding problem, and right. so we kept hoping that like Isol would catch on so it wouldn't hurt our Isis. <laughs> anyway, so that one's on the shelf right now. Maybe it'll come back. I don't know. <laughs> but there's a classic yeah. example of. You know, a good idea that doesn't fly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you were with um, venture stores, we, did you? I know you started working in the in the stores on the sort of on the floors. Did you uh, did you wind up being a buyer there, or I, I forgot? Yeah, I actually, was a. Um, I started in the, that was part of their training program. You're in the stores for about a year, then assistant buyer, then buyer, and then actually I was um, VP merchandise manager there. So I ran uh, the jewelry and accessories division. Mm. Okay. Then you were left there when uh, at the I right did. time and uh, got off the escalator yeah. and got on another one. Huh? So, so you, you drove coals from 40 stores to 100 or to 1,000. Huh? That's pretty good. Oh, yeah. I was all by yourself. myself, yeah. <laughs> so I, was, I think about managing change because that's always one of the – uh, questions that comes back in any line of work. When I was with Westinghouse, when we started in the uh, when I started in the civilian nuclear power in 1959-1960, I mean, there wasn't any. So, uh, and at the same time, computers were just getting started. So I had a college class, a graduate level class in computers that was stock on the blackboard because there weren't any computers. 
So anyway, I decided maybe I should have gotten the computers. Who knows? But uh, I went into the civilian nuclear power. So we had about 300 people. Within 15 years, we had 100,000. So that was basically selling one mm-hmm. product. Mm-mm-mm. And, uh, and licensing it because a lot of the international sales. You, uh, even in the United States, a foreign company is not allowed to own an electric company. Hmm. Electric company must be domestic. So if you go to Belgium or France or Spain or someplace, they don't want American companies owning their generators. So you have to have a local company. Maybe it's a subsidiary or maybe it's a licensee okay. or something. Always very, mm-hmm. always very political. But it was basically selling the same thing all around the world. So that was easy. In terms of product design, I'm getting the product to work was mm-hmm. a little trickier, but fortunately I was there to handle all that. But uh, the time came, so the rest of the Westinghouse Corporation wasn't very good. So we pulled through a lot of sales. If a utility bought a nuclear supply from Westinghouse, a company that would normally buy their turbines from GE was afraid to buy their turbines from GE, so uh-huh. they bought from us. So, so instead of selling at list minus thirty-five, we're selling at list mm. plus twenty on things that, that they could hardly move otherwise. So, uh, huge benefit to the corporation. Uh, but eventually, uh, the nuclear power business stopped growing. People got uh, the public got scared. Uh, we never did kill anybody, but right. scared a lot of people. So, so uh, the company said, "Okay, uh, we need to do business. Right. What, what are you going to do?" And the company, of course, the corporation had people at headquarters in charge of acquisitions and brand extensions, things like that, big picture stuff. But they could never get mm. it done. And it wasn't clear why. But anyway, they they told us guys, Jim Moore, why don't you, you go do, do some of that? So I immediately got put in charge. And uh, within a month, I had... Um, of course, Westinghouse, but also the uh, Mitsubishi Trading Company and the uh, Sumitomo NEC Corporation. So Mitsubishi Corporation, Sumitomo Corporation, so two of the biggest corporations uh-huh. in the world, plus Westinghouse, all organized, all set up to manufacture engineering workstations, which were just coming in the market. Then Apollo had a brand and uh, Sun Microsystems uh-huh. had a brand. So we said, well, we could come in flat-footed and started selling, but we didn't have a marketing chain. We'd have to invent one of those, so we could go buy one. So uh, our, my idea was we'd go buy Apollo, uh, which was number two, but it wasn't it wasn't a terrible number two. It was uh-huh. not quite as big, therefore probably cheaper. So the Japanese companies were all ready. They sent a whole bunch of people over. We had all kinds of high-level corporate meetings. And uh, when it finally came down to doing it, the Westinghouse side, my boss's boss, got cold feet. wouldn't do it. So the whole Mm. thing fell apart. Now, I don't know if it was a good idea or not, and he didn't either. He didn't get cold feet because he didn't know what a computer was. He he probably didn't. But uh, he just got cold feet, which was the problem that that was the reason the headquarters guys couldn't do anything because somebody always got cold feet. So they're all in favor of buying new products or getting into new businesses, but um, it was really hard to do. What do you think about, I know you have some colorful friends, like, I don't know, Cliff yes. or Bruce Bruce Baker, those guys, they were entrepreneurs in their own right, but they 
were not part of a large corporation. So do you feel it was easier for them to get their idea out there and, you know, make it meaningful than working as part of a big corporation? Uh, It's certainly easier, but on the other hand, you have a high expectation of pooping out. Yeah. The, uh, the, the, uh, I'll give you one example. One of the things companies I wanted to buy was BBN, Bolt Baranek Newman, which is a, one of the Route 48 companies in Boston, which is a whole collection of defense contractors okay. typically, spinoff companies from MIT. Well, this particular one had invented something. It was big in the Internet back oh. when it was, wasn't even called Internet yet, but that in those days. And they were big mm-hmm. internationally. Well, that seemed like a good yeah. thing to jump on. Now, they had another product, which was torpedoes. Well, Westinghouse, was it torpedoes? Yeah. I think it was torpedoes. So Westinghouse, they made torpedoes. No, I shouldn't say that. One. They made sonar, I think. I don't think they actually made the But they were making mm-hmm. sonar. Uh, Westinghouse had a division, military division, did a lot of Navy stuff, and they were in sonar. So I wasn't able to go by this company because it was uh, lying across one of the Westinghouse divisions. Now, BBN was much better in sonar than this Uh Westinghouse division was, but, of course, nobody could admit that. So I finally came to the view that in a corporation as large as Westinghouse, there's already somebody in every field. So no matter what you do, you're stepping Uh on somebody. And that somebody may not be very important in the scheme of things, but it was still practically impossible to fight through the uh, and do that kind of thing. So what we could do was uh, uh, go buy little companies when nobody was looking or buy into a little company. Uh-huh. Uh, the classic problem for a big company like Westinghouse, buying a small company, is that the Westinghouse shows up with a purchasing manual, which is 17 volumes <laughs> long, and says, this is the way you do business. And by the way, you can't take any risk because we'd have to make good your your consequences. So here's the you know way to do In other words, you kill them. <coughs> so most uh, acquisitions don't work for that. If a big company buys even a medium-sized company, almost mm. always kills it. If you buy a yeah. little company, you really kill it. So uh, my approach was to take a minority position so that the parent company had no uh, liability with an option to buy in in some complicated uh-huh. way. So that worked That worked pretty well. That was allowed, that was tolerated, and uh, some of those were successful, uh, not all. And we also started some things flat-footed. I at one time had the second biggest, or maybe the biggest, civilian space engineering company. Hmm. And they were busy, but, well, then the challenger blew up, and that business went to hell, but... That eventually became a Westinghouse uh, company uh, doing government contracting of some kind. That was after I left. But well, that, see, that's interesting because I'm sure you remember, whatever, our first walk on the moon. I don't know if you – were you watching yes. that on TV? I don't know. But then you know, just this yes, week right. we shot a Tesla car up there. Like it's just very interesting from yes. a government-run organization to more of an, an entrepreneur mindset. Yeah. Well, uh, I was thinking about that very thing, because uh, I guess everybody is. When um, when I was a kid reading uh, sci-fi mm-hmm. books, 
of which I read many in those days, until they figured out that what I was doing was more complicated than what <laughs> they were talking about. Uh, but one of the things you ask yourself is, well, when they had guys going to the mm-hmm. moon, did they have TV cameras feeding back to Earth? No. I never saw a sci-fi book where they thought in terms of TV, uh-huh. or, they, or let me say, put it in, in terms of marketing. Nobody in those days felt a need to market what they were doing. So why was NASA doing TV? Because they wanted public support. It had nothing to do with the images. If they wanted the image, you'd use a camera and bring back some kind of Mm high-resolution thing, not a a cheap television or a limited bandwidth television Uh connection. So that changed. Now, here we have Musk firing up his own roadster. That's clearly marketing, right? If if anybody ever was a marketer here, it was Musk. I think it's interesting. It's funny because, I don't know, maybe because I was a finance major, but at least in Indiana, (laughs) if you – couldn't handle the accounting or finance programs, you end up being a marketing major. Because so everyone kind of looked at that as being, yeah. I don't say the easier route, but let's say the less quantitative route, even though obviously there's a lot of numbers in marketing research and yeah. stuff as well. But when it comes down to it, you kind of see how marketing is so important to make any business go. It's just, I think people don't get it because it's harder to quantify. Yeah. And I think that's, that's another that's- interesting topic I was thinking of when we think about initiative from a non-business perspective, I'm sure you could probably think of occasions like, I don't know, your friend, uh, the golf ball guy, right? Isn't he like, I mean, yeah. isn't he trying to get like clean water for people? Like there's other things besides just a business a mentality that requires initiative and entrepreneurship. I know like in my own involvement with, you know, I love my Ice Age Trail, which is a national trail. So, of course, it's, mm-hmm. you know, government. You get very little money from the government, I might add. But it is considered a national entity, and it's under the Department of the Interior. But just on a local level, how you get people aware of it, and it takes a lot of um, creativity to raise money and keep it going. And that's a a great benefit that I see for people for health and wellness and being outdoors and all the great things you're mm-hmm. supposed to do for your brain to get fresh air. But yeah. It's hard to quantify, so it's hard to get people to yeah. support your cause when you can't say, "Oh, we have 1.2 million people using the trail, therefore you'll get exposure to that level." Like it's just hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, since I worked for a technical company, Westinghouse, for a long mm-hmm. time, and then I worked for, uh, well, I should—that's an interesting contrast. The uh, I'll come back to that. Companies like Westinghouse, when they're run by engineers, when the CEO is an engineer, they don't really do very well. Engineers don't make good CEOs. Hmm. Neither do lawyers, neither do financiers. You really need a marketing guy, somebody who isn't bothered by all the numbers, but can go out and talk to a customer and listen to a customer and schmooze a customer or customers and understand a a population and uh, convert that into some direction for the corporation. That's uh, now the most recent guy who failed at that entirely was Jeff Immelt of GE. Yeah. He was a marketing guy, and he thought he could do it, and he, he completely collapsed. Whereas Jack Welsh had a PhD in chemical huh. engineering, and, and yet I didn't somehow know that. he was a, a great, yeah, great imagination uh-huh. guy. You, you don't think of chemical engineers as being all right. imaginative. Now, uh, I went for a while, a couple of years, I was working as a contractor, for, just for the heck of it, with uh, TCI yes. Cable. 
selling, designing, making up uh, networks, usually for school systems who had to have physically separate equipment for privacy rules. And the Internet really wasn't big yet in those days. So they had to have uh, something, and they had money. They could get government money Mm -hmm. or state money, so money wasn't a problem. But you had to find something they wanted to buy and then go build it. And the company, TCI, the cable company, was interesting because it was really a construction company. What they knew how to do was hang stuff on poles and cut trenches and put yeah. things on, jack things in your house and so on. They were good at that. <clears throat> but they had, interestingly enough, no cost control hmm. system. Nobody nobody knew what anything huh. cost. They had very, very poor inventory control. But they had a whole bunch of guys with pickup trucks and, and uh, a pinch of snuff and off we go and <laughs> it was really something. But so the guy who, uh, what's his name, who invented that, made that company up almost out of whole cloth, was, uh, he had a, a lot of imagination. But he sure wasn't a detailed uh-huh. guy, and he never, maybe if he had ever hired a cost accountant, it would have killed the company. I don't know. <laughs> when, <laughs> because they ran on negative cash flow and negative EBITDA and negative yeah. everything, but they're growing like mad. So they could, they could sell stock. Off they went. In fact, for those companies, the worst thing they could do was turn a profit because then all of a sudden they expect – it's like Amazon. Amazon. Yeah, I was Amazon say. <laughs> as long as they were losing money like mad, they could, they could raise money. Now that they're starting to make money, people have different right. expectations. So the trick with those things was to build a company up and then sell it before just two minutes before it went profitable. The same with the wireless companies. The, the right thing to do is they get a little franchise someplace – build it till it looked like it was going to work and then get out mm-hmm. quick. <laughs> well, there's a lot of new um, example comes to mind. You know, Robbie is in Dublin now and he has a whole class on cyber currency, which I think is interesting because well, well, at least when I was in school, you never even thought about that. And apparently I don't know. I could be misspeaking, but um, apparently Ireland is making a push to be like the, cyber currency coast or something like they're trying to be like the forefront and the leaders of that industry to come. And it's just, you know, it's very topical Uh right now with what's going on with Bitcoin and all those things, but it's just an interesting that they have a whole class about it. And that's what, how these kids think that's what the future is and how that's how they'll operate in that world where, I don't know. I remember when they started printing $2 bills, right? Because they thought that $1 bill would be obsolete and now it's still not, you know? (laughs) So, right. I don't know. I don't, it's just interesting to think about those innovators in that industry and how are they going to manage that and who's really going to be a forefront and take initiative to make that mean something and be worldwide. I know it's interesting. Yeah. Well, the the Bitcoin original concept was to have a currency independent of government. Yeah. Now, here is – and yet we see governments like Ireland saying we're going to have a government-sponsored – Government free. Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> now, the underlying technology, the uh, blockchain thing, where that probably is, uh, that's something for you. I don't, know how, I don't know what that's going to do to retailing, but it's going to make a big difference in the whole concept of supply lines, uh, where the who owns what at any one second in time. So, that's something for you to pay attention to. IBM, if you look at IBM.com, uh, they have a lot of tutorial stuff on blockchain. And one of the world experts on it happens to be 
Matt. Oh. Gray. So if you get stuck, <laughs> huh. but the idea is that that it's something that's uh, very hard to cheat on. This is independent of the money thing. This is just making our record and uh, making a little contract. Coles, well, it's, for instance, in uh, if you write a check on Bank A and deposit right. on Bank B, Bank B says well, you can have your money in three days. We have to wait for the money to cl- right. the check to clear. Well, if it if that's done in blockchain, the transfer is ah. instantaneous. There's there's mm-hmm. no float. Or if you sell stock, there's a seven day settlement yeah. time. Uh, that's now zero. So it does. And Matt has some story about a buddy of his in, at Shell, who was one of his classmates at uh-huh. the Rice in business school, uh, who did something that in their supply line and saved twenty thousand dollars a contractor. I don't know, but. Uh, that's one that will impact you because retailers are going to want to do that uh, because they'll be forced to. So it, it just changes. Uh, sounds like a t- teeny tiny thing, a different way of keeping ledgers, but it, um, it apparently it's going to have a big deal in in uh, retailing or in any place where there's a transfer of property down the supply chain. It also makes a big difference in government because what a lot of government does is keep records like who owns yeah. what title to what property and who got married when. That's uh, record keeping is big. And these things are, uh, once they're created, they're kept in the cloud. Yep. So it's impossible to squelch them. And it's also hard to cheat. I'm not saying it's impossible to cheat, but it's harder to cheat uh-huh. there than Well, it's things. an old concept. It's the time value of money, right? If you can <laughs> have it. it, you know. this, And then plus I think it's a reflection of our, culture that we always say oh the world's smaller because everything's so much more instantaneous it's so much easier to get an email from across the world or even you know skype or something across the world now instantaneously at any time of the day versus having to wait for a telex or a fax or (laughs) it's just that's so compressed that i just wonder like our kid like sam or I think of Robert and Rachel, like what their world's going to be like, because it's hard to imagine it could be any faster or more instantaneous. <laughs> yeah. Well, if you keep tapping away at the cost of the transfer along the supply line, as, uh, for instance, Walmart is famous for having done with their organization and other distribution mm-hmm. centers, computerizing all that, I guess. I mean, I don't know, need don't, but uh, uh, that made some difference in how the whole supply line is organized, I think. So, and people at one time, I don't know if it's actually touched on your lines of business, but at one time, people manufacturing garments figured out they could simply inventory thread on spools mm-hmm. in Singapore and do the day's orders quick like this, have them on a, on a 747 the next day and have them in Kokomo on day three. Yeah, it's great when nothing breaks down or the government doesn't get involved and say, oh, we have too much pollution. you got to shut your factory down three days a week or all those other uh-huh. complications that get in the way. But in theory or on paper, it sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you can do that with fleece. Oh, on. yeah. And what are the other people? Okay, so a lot of our production is China, which is why we have these pollution issues. But – you know, people disappear for months at a time. It's Chinese New Year. The world closes down. <laughs> it's, it's just yeah. things you have to um, 
take into account and try to project based on. It's all very not as easy as it always looks on paper. <laughs> well, now the uh, one of the things in this NAFTA, I'm interested in your view on this. It looks like the big push from our Commerce Department is to get the local content requirement jacked way up, particularly on Mexico, because the the Commerce Department thinks people like Chinese are shipping goods into Mexico. They add a teeny amount of value. Yes. They add one button, ship it to mm-hmm. the U.S., or just take out a box A and put it in box B. So uh, do you think that's happening? Um, absolutely, I think that happens. And I think it's all – and it just comes not to make it simplistic, but it all comes back to the consumer. What's the consumer willing to pay for stuff? And if they want something that they believe is better quality or it's, I don't know, mirrors their philosophies. I'll use, um, I don't know, Patagonia, for example. They're a high-end uh, apparel mm-hmm. company. They use recycled goods and they only produce in ethical manners and blah, blah, blah. But you know what? Their coast costs $600. So if that is important to you, you'll pay that. But if you're a normal person, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, I don't think you really care where your stuff's made. You think a code is worth $40, that's what you're going to pay. So I believe that consumer demands that. And I think – I understand government has to get involved to because they think they're trying to level the playing field or whatever. But in the end, it's – the consumer is king. Yes. Well, the government has some responsibility to balance the interests right. of everybody. So it's a continuous negotiation, but you, do you protect the, uh, the the shoemaker in Boston or in right. Logan, Massachusetts, or do you say the hell of that will buy right. our shoes in Italy or China or in Vietnam? Or I mean, there's only one pie. People aren't going to buy so many shoes, so I guess you have to figure out how many at what price, and that's what you decide. If shoes out of Logan, yeah. Massachusetts are probably – well, they're probably made in China too, but let's say they're – um, whatever, the content of it, whatever done, or that company is based here, but the production is someplace else. I don't know. There's a lot of things you have to factor in, but there's only so much pie. Only so many shoes are going to be sold. So figure out how to balance that. I don't know. But talk about marketing. We have the best marketer in the world in office, right? So. <laughs> yes. That's right. He's got everybody yeah. believing. It's so clever. I mean, I don't know if, if this guy is just lucky or what, but. He spent a lot of time telling black Americans, hey, the Democrats are bringing all these uh, wetbacks in to take your jobs. Why don't you vote for me? I'll stop that. So then he goes to the DACA people and say, hey, I'll give you amnesty just for a few of you, not everybody, not not everyone here, but some of you. The Democrats never will. They're playing you as as Mm -hmm. shills. So you got to vote. If I do this, you're going to vote for me. And you see DACA kids, now 40 years yeah. old, but the DACA kids popping up saying, vote for Trump. So it's, he's, he's just shot holes in the whole Democrat uh, yeah. coalition. He's not an engineer trying to lead the country. He's a marketing person. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And he, and he listens to people. People say, hey, I want my job. Yeah. He listens yeah. to them. And he says, oh, uh, you want to kneel down while we're playing the anthem? Well, Heck with mm-hmm. that. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Why yeah. do a lot of work? Remarkable. Yeah. I remember, um, uh, and this, uh, I don't know if you, you remember this book, but I had it for years. I should even see if it's still around. I don't know. When I was in college, you sent me a book out of the blue called A Whack on the Side of the Head. Do you remember that book? Yes, I remember that. I don't remember it was, I, I think it was book. about thinking outside the box and um, oh, uh-huh. 
you know, being creative, but of, of course there's always, you know, a limit to that, or you're still in a box. How do you think outside the box and make it fit back into the box kind of thing? I don't know. It's just interesting. Cause I'm sure it's still relevant today with, it, it just seems like the, um, yeah. innovation is faster. I should say comes to market faster. And it could be because of the immediacy that we talked about or the, Ability to get venture capitalist money maybe is more accessible. I don't know. It's just interesting how the cycle seems much faster than it used to be. I think so. I think so. Part of it's the news cycle or the attention cycle or the you're doing it. Where's my smartphone cycle? I was thinking uh, you talk about ideas. One of the um, once upon a time, I read a book by a man named Anthony Jay who had been with the BBC and he had got fired or something. Anyway, he wrote some books. One of them was his remark on the fact that he wondered why the Roman legions were a thousand men. And he finally figured out that that's as far as a man's voice could carry. If he had 2,000 people, the guys in the back wouldn't hear the... Wouldn't ah. hear. So they organized this with a thousand and then they divided that up so they had centurions who had a hundred and they had a discernions or something who had ten. So they had they fanned out a factor of 10. And that worked for thousands of years. So, or at least hundreds, many hundreds of years. So, uh, and that was technology limited, right? Because you know, it was voice limited. So I happened at that very time to be assistant to the engineering manager in uh, uh-huh. Monroeville, which had best been reorganized this way and that way. The other way, bang things together because we're growing like mad. So there are 1,000 people in that department. So, but some people over here had two levels, and some people had five levels, and some people didn't have anything. So, the uh, engineering manager got told, "Why don't you fix that?" So he turned to me and said, "Why don't you fix that?" So I said, "Well, I think we need. We got one thousand people. We'll do this. This will have two levels, tens and tens. And here they are. I made uh, took all of the existing groups and make index cards, and just did like this on the table, shuffle them around until they." sort of looked bright uh-huh. <laughs> and that was our new organization it was all done in three days and actually it worked pretty well and then years later when corporation the corporate headquarters big thinking people uh, said we have to rationalize all this because we have too many mm-hmm. layers we could say hey we've done, <laughs> we've done, done. and pull out your index cards <laughs> so, all, all with index cards high tech <laughs> index cards best quality modern index <laughs> cards and an idea stolen from the Romans. Thousands years ago, right? Thousand, yeah. How many thousands? Those 500. Well, I guess ago. in conclusion, that's the secret, right? It's always going to be a challenge, I think, to manage innovation and creative people, but you want creative people around you for business or nonprofit things to make the world better for Whatever, clean water, building trails. Yeah. And yeah. how do you well, balance getting those people to, to perform at their most creative, but be able to be um, have a sensible plan? Yeah, when you, one's always coming up is a diet. The government keeps issuing, issuing uh-huh. diet plans. Turns out they're all terrible. In fact, they probably by going thirty years ago or something to high carb. Low protein, low right. fat, made everybody mm-hmm. fat. And so now everybody's got diabetes. Yeah. So uh, if, if they had never done anything, 
so that's the the concept. How do you how does anybody manage um, innovation? You want some, you don't want too much. You don't want too much risk. You don't want zero risk. And how does anybody ever think about that when you get beyond sort of a closed box? Once you've got well, for instance, when I'm doing index cards, if that hadn't worked out, we'd have gotten different yeah. index cards. So it didn't make a heck of a lot of difference. But if you're bringing out, an, if you go buy another brand and it poops out, then that's probably significant in the company of years. Somebody's going to get yelled at or shot. I don't know what. Or you can go bankrupt. Little companies go bankrupt, even well-behaved mm-hmm. companies. So, uh, well, so I, I don't know how to manage that. I don't think anybody knows how to manage it. People keep writing books saying, the big companies can't do anything new, and what's required is for somebody to come along and upset it, some kind of a dump everything on his head. But nobody knows how to do that either. <laughs> Even the things we tried in Westinghouse, with the we could with when I was my little businesses and buying computer uh-huh. companies and things like that, we could do it. But the system wasn't the system didn't right. reward that. The system hated right. that. Uh, because in fact you're upsetting mm-hmm. somebody, so you want upsetting, but you don't want the upsetting. That's why we're all going to be replaced with robots, maybe because they don't have the emotional component, right? Robots can't get upset, can they? I don't know. Oh yes, <laughs> oh yes, oh yes. You have, you have to watch them very carefully, and just as there, I remember a famous case when people were wondering if robots should be mobile or if they had to be fixed. This is ah. forty years ago. There's a famous case where a mobile robot in Japan chased a worker down the here's an open hallway. Here's a worker running like man. Here's a robot <laughs> chasing him, pinned him to the wall. <laughs> oh, robots gone wild. That's interesting. Robots gone wild. and robots can certainly uh, smash each other. Yeah. So, um, yes, that's true. And you certainly, they certainly can. Uh, sabotage the other guy by messing with his software. Okay, that's a good point, right? A different kind of, I guess, emotion, different kind of sabotage, yeah. Yeah. Different kind. Yep. Yes. Hey, this has been fun. Yeah, thank you. I have to go sell some outerwear now. Thanks for listening to this episode of Barry.FYI. If you'd like to share your stories, please give us a call. We'd love to have your life lessons and your participation. Memories sweeten through the ages just like wine. Quiet thoughts come floating down and settle soft.